What up, world? It's your past first point guard and Blazer beat writer, Mike Richmond. You're listening to another episode of Lockdown Blazers, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, available wherever you get podcasts. Today's episode is going to be all mailbag everything. Hoping to make these mailbags a staple throughout the season. We'll do one a week where I answer your questions. You want to get a question on the podcast? Tweet at me, at Mike G. Rich on Twitter. I solicit questions there. If you submit one, I pretty much always answer it. My hit rate is about 99%. So you'll be good. Get in there if you want one. So that's what we're going to do. Three segments of questions. Uh, They're loosely organized, but they're all pretty much Blazer related. Some fun ones in there. Let's get it going. First question is from Jonathan at JSass on Twitter. And Jonathan asks, are the Trailblazers the deepest team in the West? The Lakers seem particularly thin. The Warriors are hobbled, etc. Yeah, I think the Blazers are definitely deeper than those two teams. Uh, The Lakers have weird depth that I don't think is very good. The Warriors have, uh, you know, maybe the best defender and best, best offensive player in the league. But beyond that, not a ton of talent, particularly at small forward where they don't have a single player on the roster that plays that position well. But if I had to pick teams in the West with better depth, I can think of two quickly. Certainly Denver Nuggets, they probably have more players than they can possibly play, particularly if Michael Porter Jr. pops. Um, Blazer fans probably don't want me to say the Nuggets here. Let me say this. The Blazers were better than them last year, and that Denver team was deeper than that Blazer team when they met in the playoffs. It doesn't always matter in the postseason, but during the regular season, Denver's way deeper. I also would say that I think I like the Clippers' depth more than more than the Blazers' depth. Uh, Mo Harkless, Lou Williams off the bench, or if you want to say Lou Williams should start, then Landry Shamit off the bench is a nice... Nice piece. Uh, I think Zubac is a nice center to bring off the bench. I think they've got parts. I think they've got they've got some useful parts. Um, the very back half of the rotation is a little bit sketchy, numbers 9 and 10, but uh, you're going to be hard-pressed to convince me that the Blazers have more depth than that group. So, yeah, I think the Blazers are up there. Um, I'm probably on the record being a little more skeptical about Portland's depth than other people in the market, so listen to their podcasts. Just kidding. Listen to mine. It's great. Next question comes from Dan at Mountain Adventure 14 on Twitter. Dan posits, I really like a starting lineup of Lillard, McCollum, Hood, Hazonia, and Collins. I love Hazonia's ability to push the pace and pass. I love Collins' ability to space the floor and block shots. I like it much better than starting Collins and Whiteside. Thoughts? Yeah, I like this in theory. Uh, I really like the future potential of Mario Hazonia playing the four. I don't love it as a starting group. I think you lose a lot on the glass. I think you lose a ton defensively without that group. I can see the skepticism over Collins and Whiteside. I totally get it. They're both centers. Straight up. Zach Collins is a center. He's probably the center of the future, but he's also a center in the present. He's going to play mostly power forward this year. In fact, the Blazers, basically other than Anthony Tolliver, Collins is the only power forward, real power forward in the roster, and he's not even a real power forward. And I understand the skepticism there. He's maybe not a great perimeter defender, and he's best when he's around the rim, and playing at power forward maybe means he's less around the rim. I think that group that you mentioned, Dame, CJ, Hood, Hazonia, and Collins is going to play a little bit. I think we'll see that five-man grouping every so often. Uh, I don't love it as a starting group, but I love it as a bench group, so I hope we get to see it, Dan. Next up, another Dan. Dan Zeal at Dizzy Zebo on Twitter asks, this isn't even a question, this is just an insult. Will Whiteside ever actually set a screen or is he just going to slip it every time? Listen, this has been a 
criticism of Hassan Whiteside that has followed him for a couple seasons is that he's not physical setting screens. I don't think he's played very well in preseason. I'm not ready to write him off yet. I am a known skeptic on, on Whiteside being good. I think he's a replacement level center with the physical tools to be much, 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 much better than that. So the Blazers are banking on those physical tools panning out in a better situation leadership-wise and also in a contract year. They think they can get more out of him. We really haven't seen him set a physical screen yet. I think you're right to worry, Dan. I think that's been a complaint that I've heard from Miami Heat fans. Really not the media, but mostly sort of like Heat Twitter people. So yeah, you'd love to see it. I think it's an important thing to watch these last... A couple preseason games, Hassan Whiteside said, he told media members today in practice that his ankle feels good. Said he's he's pain-free the last couple days, and so he's he's ready to go. He hasn't been able to run around, so maybe some of the, the way he's played in preseason is health-related. So maybe these last couple preseason games, probably not going to play in the last one. So this last preseason game against the Jazz, you'll see Whiteside be more physical, set real screens. Yusuf Nurkic was a great screen setter. The Blazers will miss that skill if Whiteside doesn't develop a little bit more. Next up, Brennan O'Donnell. Brennan asks, what would Collins have to do to be in the conversation for most improved player? I like this question, Brennan. I think it's uh, I think it's a good one. Um, I think Zach Collins is a super dark horse candidate to win most improved player. I think he will be someone that kind of the the nerds throw out there, the like the Analytics folks will say, look how good uh, Collins is. I think he's a long shot. So what would he have to do to get there? he probably have to average in the range of 17 points and push 9-plus rebounds. That's a huge jump considering his production. Obviously, he's going to play a ton more minutes, so his numbers are just going to go up naturally. I don't know if there's points like that for him to to gobble up. Like I don't think there's that many scoring opportunities for him to gobble up. But if he's a 17-9 and 9, 16 and 10 guy and the Blazers are a front line you know a top eight defense in the league Collins is going to get votes but the people who've won it the past couple seasons Pascal Siakam was awesome he was one of the 20 best players in the conference in the east last year maybe higher he should have made the all-star team but he didn't shout out to D'Angelo Russell and also Kyle Lowry to some extent and then the year before that Giannis Antetokounmpo who was you know, a borderline MVP candidate. It's a big jump. It's usually for guys who are making their first all-star team or guys like CJ McCollum that had all-star type numbers and were just in the wrong conference and had no chance of making it anyways. So yeah, I think if you're pegging numbers, what would Collins have to do? He's averaging a block and a half to two blocks, 17 and nine. That's, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a MIP award for Zach. Another Zach-related question to end out the first segment from my boy Patty Troops at Patrick Truby on Twitter. Don't know if you listen to this podcast, Pat, but what up, man? And he asks, on a scale of 1 to 10, where does Zach's hair rate? It's a great question. Uh, as a haircut, I'm giving it a 3, 3.5. Three um, I'm not loving the tight on the sides, long up top. But as a hairstyle that stays intact... During 48 minutes, while Zach Collins is doing things like getting in fights with Klay Thompson and uh, shoving around Nikola Jokic. That's a 10, baby. That's a 10. 10 for staying intact. 10 for never getting messed up. 3 for actual style. Bring back that goofy Jeff Hornacek dad haircut where it's just kind of like 
a comb over that you brush to the side with four fingers. That's the haircut I want to bring back. Bring it back, Zach. Go all 1996 on us. All right, second segment, we're doing more questions. But before we do that, I want to tell you guys about Indochino. Indochino is the world's largest made-to-measure menswear brand. Start your style upgrade now with $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more at Indochino.com when entering the code LOCKEDON at checkout. All right, more questions. Let's do it. This next one comes from Justin underscore B underscore leak on Twitter. Blazers and five is the display name and Blazers and five asks, what are, why are you a pass first point guard, Mike? Is it because you enjoy dishing out some sweet dimes of blazer knowledge? Well, I do enjoy dishing out sweet dimes of blazer knowledge. I'm a pass for pass first point guard because that is literally how I play. Um, I'm, I'm short. I'm a non-shooter. I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I am late career Andre Miller. That is my closest NBA comp. I like to play in the mid post. Love to pass. Some of my best games. I don't ever score. Shout out to Andre Miller. An all-time great Blazer contributor. All right, next question comes from David Knopp at KnoppDA on Twitter. David asks, Judging by where a healthy roster, minus Nurk, stands at the moment, what position slash type of player would the Blazers use their 15th roster spot on? This is an interesting question because I think there's more to it than just a healthy Nurk. I think a healthy Pau Gasol has to be factored into this. Pau Gasol, it was announced today that he won't be playing in preseason, which means that I think his availability for game one of the regular season has to be in jeopardy. Uh, I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but it's worth reiterating. I've seen Powell warm up the last couple games. He comes out on the floor at what is presumably will be his normal time. Um, he goes through a light shooting routine, works out with an assistant coach, gets shots up, you know, mid-rangers, post moves, pick and roll stuff, just the type of things you would normally see him do. But it's not like he's working up a full sweat. He's not sprinting around. Um, he might not be one of those dudes who works, who warms up incredibly hard to start, you know, pregame or whatever. But if, if he is, he's certainly from my, from the looks of it, he's not going hundred percent in those, uh, in those little shooting routines. So when you're considering the Blazers roster and what they might need, I think it needs to be noted that they're not only down one center in use of Nurkic, but they're potentially down another center and backup big man, Pau Gasol, who the Blazers signed this summer with the intent that he would play with. He would be a, the regular backup center. And the dude had foot surgery in May. Uh, there's no guarantee that that he that he's that he's ready to begin opening night. I'd say that's certainly in jeopardy. And and there's it's unclear how far away he is. He hasn't practiced. Um, he's cleared for some five on five stuff, but not full contact. He's working out and getting shots up with the team in practice, but he's not doing all of the things that they do. He's just kind of going through their shell things. So if Powell isn't healthy and Nurk isn't healthy and Zach Collins is your day one starter at power forward. Now, I think that might be in jeopardy considering Powell's health. I think there's a chance that they move Zach to backup center and start somebody like Anthony Tolliver at the four. But if you consider those two bigs, I think the player, I think what you would have to do if you're filling out that 15th roster spot is go get a big, go get a center. Or you get a four and you use Scal as your backup center. But 
cheap, relatively good centers are the easiest thing to find in the open market. There are tall guys who have been kind of phased out of the league as more teams go small or more teams want more wings who are available. You can find relatively cheap backup centers out there. Epe Udo, anybody. Shout out. But if Powell's healthy, I think what you have to do is you have to get a four. They just don't have many power forwards on the roster. They don't have many options on the roster. I don't think they get a backup guard. I think that was the, at some point, the reasoning is that that 15th roster spot could go to a veteran real point guard. Well, I think between Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, between how much they want to play Anthony Simons and how much they want to play Kent Bazemore and how much they want to have Mario Zoni have the ball in his hands, I don't think they need another ball handler. I don't think point guard is a position you need. So I think if you're worried about Powell, it's a center who you would add. And if you're just looking at the roster, assuming that Powell's healthy, I think you try to add a four type particularly a shooting four if he's available, because you could always use more of those, kind of an Anthony Tolliver uh, duplicate, maybe, type of thing, but maybe not 34 years old, if you can avoid it. Timothy Hines asks, will the Blazers use their two their second two-way on either London Perantes or Troy Coppin? I don't think so, Timothy. Straight up. I don't think either of those guys um, are on the two-way radar. First of all, the people that the Blazers have generally taken taken these sort of two-way risks on or just sort of even just back half of the roster risks on are people they have targeted as second-round picks or late lottery picks, Wade Baldwin style, like a, a former lottery pick, excuse me, who they can do their rehabilitation project on. And furthermore, I don't think Troy Coppin has looked like an NBA player in the very little we've seen of him in preseason. Uh, granted, that's an incredibly small sample size, but for me, that dude's not an NBA player or particularly close. I haven't really um, been impressed with the way he's played. London Perantis has looked fine, um, but I don't think they're... I'd be surprised if they added a uh, point guard with that, with that spot. I think they'll likely add wings. They got a lot of guards that they're committed to. They have, you know, three of their of their four biggest commitments, maybe three of their five biggest commitments, if you include Zach and Nurk in there, are to guards. Little guards who need balls need the ball in their hand. So I don't think it's a I don't think it's a point guard who they would target with their second two way. I'm not hundred percent sure the Blazers use that second two way. Obviously it's an option for them. But I don't think there's any pressure coming out of camp to give any any of those dudes um, who are in the back half of that roster, back half of the training camp roster, uh, a longer shot. They're, they're, those guys are much likely to be free agents. Uh, I think the Blazers keep that two-way uh, open. They keep their, um, keep their possibilities open, keep some flexibility open. They don't have a G League team. Teams with G League programs are more likely to sort of use those because they can send them into the program with the Blazers. It's a little trickier. They have to, they have to kind of loan out those guys to other programs and hope they get playing time and then bring them back for 45 days. So yeah, to answer your question, that's a long winded way of saying, no, no, I don't think those two way contracts go to either of those dudes could be wrong, but for me, those aren't great choices. All right, more questions coming up in the third segment. We'll close it out strong with questions you submitted. All right, welcome back. 
Still pass first point guard, still lockdown blazer, still Mike Richmond. Closing out the episode strong with more of your questions. This next one comes from Salamator Longwood at Sal Longwood on Twitter. Salamator asks, what's the overall look for Scal after his preseason performance? How likely are minutes this season? I talked about this a bunch in my most recent episode, but Sal, I will revisit it briefly here for you. But if you're listening to this and you kind of feel cheated, you feel like you could have taken a couple more minutes, go uh, scroll back in your podcast feed because I talked a bunch about it in the previous episode talking about how the Blazers have looked in summer league and specifically about Scal this year. Um, Heading into the season, I did not think Scal was going to play. I don't think the plan was for him to play. I think he was bench depth, um, somebody who the Blazers could kind of get into their player development program, get him to be a little sharper around the edges and be a third emergency center. Not even emergency, just a just a third string center. But with Pau Gasol's health, and again, we don't we don't really know when Powell's going to be healthy. Uh, we know he's not going to play in the final two preseason games. We know that he's entering his nineteenth year in the NBA. These um, this is the type of thing that could linger. I don't think the Blazers are going to rush him back. They want him to play in twenty twenty, certainly more than they want him to play in twenty nineteen. I'm talking like when the calendar year flips, not next season, but. Because of Powell's injury, that means that Scalabus here has a real shot to play. And I believe if Powell is not healthy, and I am very, very skeptical that he'll be healthy for game one, that Scalabus here is in the 10-man rotation and he's your backup center. I don't think he's looked great in um, in preseason. I don't think anyone on the Blazers had looked particularly good. I mean, uh, CJ McCollum had that awesome offensive game against the Suns while the Blazers were just getting shelled on the other end. But I'm not really worried about their top-end talent. Uh, but sort of the non-dames and CJs of the world, I don't think anyone's looked super sharp in preseason. I don't think you could get super hyped about anybody. But Scal has had moments where he flashes that shooting touch. Uh, he's made a couple outside jumpers. He's he's long. He's not super, super physical in there, but he's long. And the Blazers have made a, a strong point of playing him alongside Zach Collins, which leads me to believe that that's a pairing that Terry Stotts wants to play, which leads me to believe that there is a chance that Anthony Tolliver is your day one starter at power forward and Zach Collins and Scalabus here are the guys off the bench. I don't think that means Zach plays less. I just think that means he plays in a different spot. And Scal is going to be involved. If Powell's healthy, I don't think Scal plays. I don't think he's jumped him on the depth chart. And I also think the Blazers owe Powell a, a chance to see what he can do. I think they brought him here to play. I don't think they he would have signed here unless the Blazers promised him some real playing time. So if Powell's healthy, he has real playing time. Until then, Scalabissier is your backup center, backup big, and part of that 10-man group. Okay, the last question And I want to spend a little bit more time on this because it's pertinent. So if you made it this far in the episode, I appreciate you. But Parshal, at Jack Parshal on Twitter, asks, Do you think NBA players should be silent on the human rights situation in China? I do not expect professional athletes to be college professors, but I do think they are capable of being conscious on social issues outside of the United States. Agree or disagree? Parshal, I think it's a great question. And on the surface, I think I agree with you. I think... Um, NBA players are capable of being conscious and conscientious members of society in developing nuanced beliefs about the geopolitical world. 
However, I think there's an unfair expectation placed on NBA players specifically. One, because the league has kind of... The league's viewership skews left and skews uh, at least somewhat politically interested. So when players weigh in on domestic issues and just basic things like racism in America or the president or anything like that, um, you know, people are are generally the fan base is, is ready to hear what they have to say and happy to hear what they have to say. But even in those situations, we don't demand. And look, I'm not trying to a great deal of nuance beyond sort of surface level condemnation of certain things. And look, I'm not trying to excuse an NBA player's uh, lack of informed take on any sort of political opinion. Um, but I but I do think it is an unfair burden placed on them uh, because simply because the stakeholders in the largest uh, parts of NBA organizations rarely have to speak to the press. Owners have no burden to ever speak to the press. This is the billionaire class um, that probably has more stakes in Chinese business than, than the average NBA player. NBA GMs never have to weigh in. Even if Daryl Morey chose to weigh in and kind of started this um, magnifying glass on, on the human rights situation in China, um, you know, there was the protests in Hong Kong have been going on for 20 weeks. We didn't ask NBA players to weigh in for the first 19 weeks. The Chinese government has been treating the Uyghur population poorly for years. We're talking f five plus, maybe even close, closing in on a decade now. We hadn't um, considered what LeBron James wanted, felt about that until now. That's why I think it's an unfair burden. Not that the player shouldn't have a nuanced view, not that I wouldn't prefer sort of anyone who's a major public figure to consider the geopolitical ramifications of their life and experience in the world. Sure, I'd love that. I think that'd be great if all humans sort of did that. But I think it's an unfair burden because the other parts of the organization don't necessarily have to speak to the media, whereas players do. And for instance, LeBron James spoke to the media today and he condemned Daryl Morey for tweeting it and he kind of looked like a apexed capitalist. Uh, something that doesn't always sit right with NBA fans and intelligentsia. But really, it was just LeBron not having quite enough nuance to answer the question. He kind of backtracked a little bit, and he basically said that he wasn't condemning Daryl Morey for not um, understanding the politics of, you know, China at large and the world, but more condemning him for not understanding the ramifications of that tweet and what it might mean. Again, that sounded like some apex capitalist type stuff. And I think if you ask more NBA players to weigh in, you just get them into this sort of messy place where maybe they're not super informed or maybe, in LeBron's case, they have real stakes in the Chinese economy still supporting them and propping up their large brand. And I think they should be able to weigh in. I think you're right, Parshal. I think it would be nice if players were not silent on human rights atrocities anywhere in the world, anywhere on the globe, and that they spoke up and used their platform to shed light when these things happened. If more people were like Ennis Cantor and um, actively going after oppressors, no matter where they are. But they're not. And I think it, I've said it, you know, 10 times now, I think it's unfair burden placed on NBA players to have this nuance. And it's something that's been created out of the NBA's willingness um, 
to let players speak out. It's been created by by the viewership of the average NBA fan. NBA players are expected to have sort of more of this um, political, cultural capital, political understanding than maybe any other sport, certainly more than baseball players who never weigh in on this stuff and probably more than most NFL players. So yeah, I think it would be nice. I think it would be better if all citizens were more informed. But I think it is it is generally unfair to expect that from NBA players. Thanks for the question, Parshal. Thanks for letting me uh, kind of unpack that. And thanks to everyone else for listening and submitting questions. I want to do this every week. I think um, the NBA schedule doesn't always lend itself to consistency. Games are different nights. But for the most part, I would like to do these mailbags early in the week. That means I'll solicit questions on Sunday or Monday. And I'll drop the mailbag episodes on Monday morning or Tuesday morning. If you want to be involved in this little game the mailbag game, you can submit questions to me on Twitter at Mike G. Rich. Uh, you can either sub- wait till I solicit them and respond to that tweet, or if you have a question that's the middle of the week, just shoot them at me on Twitter. A couple of the questions I answered today were 10 days old because someone had just thrown it to me when they had it on their mind. So that's what we'll do. I want to make these mailbags a regular part of the season. Uh, I think it's a way for you guys to get involved. It's a way for me to understand what listeners want to know about. Do me a favor. Tell your friends about Lockdown Blazers. Tell them they can find it wherever they already get podcasts. That's on Google, Apple, and on Stitcher and Spotify. Blazers have real preseason games coming up this week. I think their game against Utah Jazz is going to look a lot like what they're going to look like in the regular season. So I'll definitely have a podcast following that one, talking about what we learned. I think the final game, final preseason game against Denver is going to be mostly meaningless. But it'll be a nice time to wrap up the preseason and talk big picture stuff as we head towards the real games on October 23rd. The season is starting. It's almost here. Appreciate you guys listening. Talk to you soon.